lean startup methodology has an important role to play. It helps you with, with financing realities, it helps you learn things, but it doesn't necessarily get you to the best you know, product solution or the best innovation or the best revolution. Be observant, like get your head up and look around you and critically think about everything that you see around you. Things that are around you are a certain way because someone decided to make them that way, you know, by and large. Why did they do that? How did they organize it? You know, what were the things that went into play? What are their options that they have? My curiosity kind of applies to systems and processes and I research a lot of different things in that way and, and I think that that has ultimately led to you know, an ability to kind of read tea leaves just a little bit better and to be able to kind of <laughs> understand poppies. and keep in touch with what's possible that wasn't before and how are things going to change and, and, and I think that those things have come together to really um, contribute to my success. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This is episode 119 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, the concluding episode of two, where I chat with Bill Magnuson, co-founder and CEO of Braze, a customer engagement platform. In this episode, Bill talks about the problem they addressed, i.e. the fundamental human problem of listening to people in order to communicate more effectively with them. We continue the colorful backstory of the origin of Braze, and Bill explains why lean startup methodology is not really the be-all and end-all for realizing his audacious visions. And he touches on the power of curiosity for entrepreneurs. There's a very interesting uh, backstory, Bill, to how the company started. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier that my uh, other co-founder, John Hyman, uh, was my boss when I started at Bridgewater. And so when I started to kind of think about what was next, he was doing the same thing. And he invited me to join him as a uh, last minute stand-in for his TechCrunch Disrupt hackathon team. Uh, the other person that he was planning on doing it with accidentally double booked himself with a rock climbing trip and so he flaked out on him at the last minute uh, and so I you know came in I canceled my plans for the weekend and we went and did this all-night uh, programming project and that project ended up winning in the judging and so we were invited to come back to the conference later that week and present on stage so fast forward a couple of days John and I are walking to the conference it's admittedly late morning, not early morning, because we had been out a little bit the night before celebrating. Good. And on our walk-in, he was you know, chatting with the woman who is actually now his wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, on the phone. And so I was standing in the crosswalk. I had no one to talk to. So I started just chatting with the guy standing next to me, and we carried a conversation as we walked across 12th Avenue on our way over to uh, the Disrupt venue, which is one of the piers on the west side of Manhattan. Cool. And he saw me on stage presenting our hackathon project later that day and reached out to me via email. And it goes something like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, we met in a crosswalk and I wanna introduce you to this person that I know who's living down in Houston. And he's running an oil and natural gas company right now, but he's been involved in the mobile space in the past and he's really interested in starting something up in mobile. And I think that you two would enjoy meeting each other. And so I, of course, ignored that email for about three weeks because I got <laughs> dozens of them that looked very similar uh, because, you know, at the time, if you got uh, written up for winning the TechCrunch Hackathon, that was a really Everyone big deal. Everyone wants to co-found with you. Exactly. You know, people were coming out of the woodwork. 
And after a few weeks and the dust settled, I went back and kind of looked through everything. And, and that was one of the shortlisted ones I decided to reply to. And I ended up meeting with Mark and, you know, seemed like a really interesting guy. And so I introduced him to John as well. And the three of us all kind of, you know, they say that you should really take your co-founder relationship super seriously. And you should think about it as like dating before marriage and all these things. And honestly, we didn't do any of that. We all went to New York for one dinner. We, uh, had that one dinner and we all connected and we decided to move to New York together and you know I'll quit our jobs and start up the company. Uh, and tell us about that first year or two um, uh, with Braze. We were building to try and help people take the mobile experiments that they were doing and the apps that they were building and turn them into businesses. And I remember going to meetups in New York and you know presenting and talking about Maslow's hierarchy for the app owner where you know in the early days it was enough to merely exist. You know there were only a few dozen apps in the app store and you could literally do anything and charge people 99 cents for it and people would try it out. Um, but pretty quickly it evolved from that to the point where you needed to provide something. Like what was a meaningful product or service that could be provided in mobile that couldn't be provided before. And I think there were a lot of really good analogies into the dot-com days which were that in the very early days you know let's take a bank as an example, they could put up a website with an under construction animated GIF and their opening hours, and that counted as a website, you know, and that was enough. And then it was like, oh, well, wait, what about having a website is actually special for a bank? Well, maybe you can check your bank balance online anytime, even when the bank is closed, right? And so that's that progression to the provide stage. Yep. And now the provide stage in mobile also depended on the advancement of the underlying technology. The batteries had to get better, the cell networks had to get faster, GPS got miniaturized and you know started to similarly become more battery efficient. And then that led to a lot of the earliest businesses that were built in mobile were on the back of those things. It was was, you know, media streaming, like music streaming, it was local marketplaces, it was dating applications and such. And then there was a long stage of vanity metrics. And of course, the vanity metrics and the dot-com boom, we all know very well, people raising money based on hits and page views and the visitor counters. And we had the same thing in mobile. It was downloads and installs and where am I in the app store rankings? And it wasn't really until we got beyond that that people started to focus on things like daily active users monthly active users or God forbid revenue, right? That we would measure the success of the business by. And what we really needed was for people to get to the top of that pyramid and to yeah. really be focusing on how am I engaging people in the long term? How am I driving them toward becoming more valuable users and really driving revenue? And so the early days was, it was a lot of education. It was a lot of trying to get people to kind of think more forward and think about their forays into mobile as being real sustainable businesses. You obviously thought very deeply about it, or the founding team thought very deeply about it, because when I listened to you talk with passion about uh, about engaging meaningfully and stuff like that. No, very often when I talk to somebody about the first two or three years of a company, they'll talk about the you know a bridgehead a, a customer that helped them or a, a vertical they went into. But you guys were constantly questioning this in the first two or three years. Your approach to to uh, to actually uh, developing the company. Yeah, and we tried to develop it pretty comprehensively, which you know honestly meant that it did take a while for us to get traction. And when you really look at the growth curve of our company, we've grown a lot in the last few years. In the early years, we were really focused on R&D, and we didn't really follow the whole lean startup MVP playbook very well. Uh, yeah. You know, the very first release of our product actually had um, all the cross-channel messaging that you see today. We had email, we had push notifications, we had in-app messaging, and we had um, an option that was both ephemeral and one that was persistent. That ended up being a really important enduring advantage because our initial release wasn't siloed in a particular messaging type, 
which meant that all of the other things around who do we talk to, you know, what, how do we prioritize different strategies, what are we gonna say, how do we personalize the content, how do we measure it, all of those things were actually built to solve the harder problem of communicating in all these different places. And I think a lot of other companies actually um, made the, the unintentional mistake of building all of that sophistication higher up for only a single channel. And then when they've needed to add other platforms or when they've needed to go from ephemeral to persistent messaging or from push-based messaging to pull-based messaging or outside of a product experience to inside of a product experience, that these are all ways that kind of stretch the rest of their system to the point where it breaks. And then they'll end up with heterogeneous feature sets depending on what channel or what platform you're on or things don't intuitively fit together. And of course, when that happens, this is already a really complex problem, yeah. trying to coordinate all of this understanding of people across platforms, communicate with them in all these different ways. If you can't manage that complexity in a, in a system that's really kind of delivering that sophistication to you in a way that you can manage it across all those different interfaces, you pretty quickly get buried in that complexity and you can't move forward. So I've often felt that the, the, the whole lean startup thing um, you know, it's kind of like a religion today, but I've often uh, thought about what would have happened to some of the great minds and the great inventors over the years and over the centuries if that had been the kind of the dogma that kind of ruled the world. I think most of them would have withered. Do you feel that sometimes when you get a, a two or three brilliant people together and they really want to address a, a problem at a very fundamental level and understand it before they build it out too much, do you feel sometimes the, the lean startup uh, kind of dogma can drive people down a, down a blind alley? Yeah, I mean, I think that the lean startup dogma, I mean, anything that is dogma is, is you know, generally gonna have its downsides. And I think that if you view it as a tool for learning, that that's really important. So if there's parts of your idea that you need to vet out and understand, and you of course should be applying a certain level of, Absolutely. you know, a, a certain level of humbleness to kind of how you're evaluating things and, and be really honest with yourself about where you understand things and, and where you don't. Sure. And using that lean startup methodology to test things and learn, uh, but if something needs to be audacious and if something needs to be comprehensive in order for it to really make the change, you gotta figure out a way to invest in that. Absolutely. And, and I think that you know when you look at, a great example is looking at SpaceX, where they have this big audacious goal, but they've figured out you know, in, in as lean as you can get in the rocket world, like how do we actually sell something to the market so that we can go and we can learn and we can fund the thing that is the big audacious thing as well. Okay. And so they're not just trying to be lean, they're also trying to solve an audacious problem. And I think that that's an, you know, that's an important example to keep in mind is that that lean startup methodology has an important role to play. It helps you with, with financing realities, it helps you learn things, but it doesn't necessarily get you to the best you know, product solution or the best innovation or the best revolution. Absolutely, and before I come back to you a little bit, uh, Bill, I just one little thing I wanna ask you. Raise claims to be kind of set apart um, you know, for today's mobile first world and tomorrow's ambient computing future. Uh, just tell me a little bit about why you make that claim. Yeah, this goes back to what I was just talking about in terms of thinking about how, how do we go back to the fundamental human problem of listening to people in order to understand them so that we can communicate with them. Yep. And this idea that that problem of listening should be able to kind of act across all these different ways that humans interact with technology. And this problem of communicating with them should also be in, you know, what are all the different places that I have permission to talk to you and where you've kind of welcomed me into your life. And then it's, it's on me to be a, as kind of valuable and relevant as possible within those constraints. 
And so when you really put, when you define the problem that way, there's no mention of Apple or iOS or web or VR, or AR, or chatbots or whatever. It's really this kind of fundamental thing of trying to understand people in order to talk to them. And as I, I think that as we move into an ambient computing future, that the platforms are going to continue to proliferate and that the ways that we can communicate with people will similarly expand and get more complicated. And what we really need to be able to do is organize all that and be able to kind of communicate to people in the most appropriate way. And if we're still in some sort of siloed thinking, you know, we're, we're it's hopeless. And in the early days, I actually used to bristle at people even calling us, you know, mobile first or mobile only because we were really building something for the future of humanity as changed by mobile. Because I think that mobile was really the first time that we ended up with this really intimate connection with technology. You know, we certainly were receiving email before, we were interacting with computers, we had the internet, but it was in an environment that was controlled and it yeah. was deliberate, you know, and, and this introduction of computing to go with us everywhere in all of our most personal moments and, you know, with us every moment of the day, that fundamental change even if we change platforms, even if we take the screen from being in our pocket to like bolted to the front of our face, that change I would posit is not as big of a deal as the jump from before to this stage of kind of intimate or personal computing. And so that's the future we've been building for. And I think that as the form factors and the interfaces change, we feel really well prepared no matter how that evolves because the, the real important stepwise change already happened with mobile. Um, what do you think is one personal quality that has been a kind of a superpower for you that's helped you succeed? Curiosity is the best one to kind of think about there. And, and a big part of it is just the, I have kind of an insatiable appetite for learning about things that I see or experience or observe. And, you know, I actually, I mentioned earlier that I have two kids and the, and the one thing I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of parental controlling of screen time that's happening nowadays. And, and I'm certainly, I'm not strongly in that camp, especially reflecting on my own childhood. Um, but the thing that I really try and encourage them to do is just be observant, like get your head up and look around you and critically think about everything that you see around you. Things that are around you are a certain way because someone decided to make them that way, you know, by and large. Why did they do that? How did they organize it? You know, what were the things that went into play? What are their options that they have? My curiosity kind of applies to systems and processes and I research a lot of different things in that way and, and I think that that has ultimately led to, you know, an ability to kind of read tea leaves just a little bit better and to be able to kind of <laughs> understand patterns. and keep in touch with what's possible that wasn't before and how are things going to change and, and, and I think that those things have come together to really um, contribute to my success. When you wake up in the morning, um, what pushes you to do all of this? I think one of the things that, so I actually was our CTO originally and moved to being CEO and a lot of people ask me, you know, how's that going? What's it like? And the thing that, uh, the thing that really I like about it is that as a technologist, you're constantly solving new problems with new tools. And as the CEO of a fast growing company, it's the same thing. You constantly are seeing new problems, but you're building organizationally all these new capabilities as well. So you're solving new problems with new tools. And I, and I really like that the space that we're in and the problem that we're trying to solve is also born of technology. And so there's change all around this. And that ability to kind of contribute to how we organize ourselves around reacting to the change and trying to do it in a positive way so that you know we've got technology that's coming in and disrupting all these different things. Like how can we take a, an approach that allows us to try and 
take it as it comes and allow for that change to happen, but help organize it and really put a human you know, impact behind it and a human focus behind it and try to really get back to you know, who we are as individuals and make sure that we're improving you know, our own lives and that we're improving the lives of other people. Bill Magnuson, thank you very much for being on 14 Minutes of SaaS. Yes, absolutely, thank you. In the next episode, episode 120 of 14 Minutes of SaaS, we have the first of three episodes with Denmark's Peter Mullman, founder and CEO of Trustpilot. It hosts reviews of businesses worldwide with the goal of assisting consumers and companies to purchase the right products and services for them. The site has processed about 100 million reviews and the company has raised 193 million US dollars since its launch. listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating. Mm-hmm.